Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue our series through the life and ministry, the theology of the Apostle Paul. This morning we find ourselves at the end of 1 Corinthians. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. Remember, beloved, these are, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, meaning God the Father, is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, God the Father, that God may be all in all. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, on Thursday night, Stephanie and I had a wonderful time having dinner, kind of a premarital counseling kind of dinner with an engaged couple at the church, it was uh, wonderful in so many ways and um, really enjoyable to hear about how um, Chase and Sumner uh, got to know each other, how they met, their background, their families, all those kinds of things. It was just a delightful evening. We also discussed some books would be appropriate for premarital purposes, um, books they've already read, books maybe a couple that we will read together. Um, After they left, though, it occurred to me that a book I just finished last night is also a beautiful picture of the joys and the challenges, the struggles, the highs and lows of marriage. Written by a woman from Charlotte, of all places, her name is Judy Goldman, and the book is simply outstanding. It's called Together, and it's her memoir, her wonderfully written autobiography of her life and marriage to Henry over the years. It is moving. 
um, about the things that they shared together. She's not a Christian, and that's clear, but the book has an awful lot of common grace insights. And if you're looking for another summer read, I highly recommend it, Together by Judy Goldman. In particular, she kind of frames this story around a medical mishap that her husband experienced back in 2006 and how it deeply shaped their later years together. Henry, her husband who struggled with chronic back pain, read in the paper about a non-surgical treatment that was advertised to relieve the pain. Seemed like a great idea at the time, just a minor procedure that would alleviate years of back trouble. Sadly, even tragically, that is not what happened for Henry. Something went very wrong with the procedure, and he ended up partially paralyzed from the waist down. Years of pain and difficulty and years of rehab to follow. You know, it's amazing how such a seemingly small and innocuous thing can cause such damage, but it did. And when you think about it, that dynamic, something that seems so small, so insignificant, so innocuous, can cause such great damage. That, that dynamic is very much at play in our passage today. The Corinthians were holding on to a belief from their former lives that seemed on the surface just like a minor difference from the Apostle Paul, something that in the scheme of things couldn't really hurt much. I mean, how could this be dangerous? It was just a little thing, just a little variation from what Paul is teaching. But they were soon to find out that this minor difference, this minor variation, if left unchecked, could threaten the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Not a little thing after all. Okay, so with that introduction, on the surface, their view, their issue, their difficulty, the thing that they were holding on to, it seems very odd given that these people were Christians who were growing and learning and thriving in the church at Corinth. Their view is kind of interesting. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, they happily, currently, presently affirmed and believed in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that truth was being preached, proclaimed, and received and affirmed in the church of Corinth. They affirmed the bodily resurrection of Jesus on the one hand and denied for the possibility of a bodily resurrection for the Lord's people on the other. And on the surface, that seems to make no sense. Why in the world, on the one hand, would you affirm the bodily resurrection of Jesus and deny that same possibility for yourself on the other? Very, very curious. Look at verse 12. Paul writes, now if, you could also say since. Now since Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. In other words, since, you know, given that that's your current belief, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead. Okay, if you believed the former, why would you not believe the latter? It doesn't logically follow. Why the inconsistency? Okay, what, what was the deal here? So as we go along, see if you can try to figure out, I'll be interested, you know, what might have been the motive 
on the part of the Corinthians to affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection, to affirm that and believe that while deny that possibility for themselves. Why would they hold on to something like that? What would be in it for them to cling to that kind of belief? That's what's going on here. Okay, lots of people think that this chapter is, 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 you know, it is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's not what the people were denying. They were denying the possibility of their own bodily resurrection. And it's going to have implications, so, so stick with me here. Let's look at verses 12 through 19. Paul shuts this down, and he explains why it's so dangerous. Verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Okay, he's going to say these things are logically connected. It's a package deal. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If we don't have the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't have anything. It's game over. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified, Paul is saying the apostles, okay, all throughout the Roman Empire, okay, we have testified publicly about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. That was their view. That's the problem. Verse 16, he continues, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's saying, don't you understand how this could be a problem. You can't divorce those things. You can't separate those things. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other words, this is not a minor thing, a small thing, a tiny exception. This is a big thing. Verse 18, then those also, in other words, if you're right in a big picture way, if you're right that the dead cannot be bodily raised, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning they're lost. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, all, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, you could, in a sense, reduce the Christian claim to that. If we only have hope of the truth of Christianity in this life, Okay, if the, if the greatest benefit of Christianity is that it makes us feel good in this life only, then we are to be pitied more than all men. That's his point. According to Paul, the denial of bodily resurrection, just as it relates to the Lord's people, could have massive consequences. Because obviously if it's not possible for the Lord's people, it's a short road to saying it's not possible you know, across the board, including with the Lord Jesus. So you can't separate this. You can't compartmentalize this. Corinthians, you can't hold on to this from your former days because to believe this, to deny this, one day you may ultimately deny that, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Any guesses to why they held on to this? Any guesses to why this might have been attractive to them? Any guesses to how this might have um, enabled them to engage in some kinds of sin? Holding on to this belief that resurrection wasn't possible in their own case, while it was possible for the Lord Jesus? Keep thinking about that. Let's look at verses 20 
through 24. Okay, Paul's going to make the point that this is a package deal. It all coheres together. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if you affirm the former, okay, then the latter is also going to be true. Okay? They go together. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's going to make a comparison between the first Adam, the Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, the first Adam, our first father, and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. One of Paul's most famous verses, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. First Christ, he's the beginning, then on the last day those who trust in him will get their glorified bodies. Verse 24. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, and the last enemy of death will be destroyed as well. So Paul's point is this. His bodily resurrection was the first link in the chain that will ultimately culminate in the second coming of Christ and the bodily resurrection of the Lord's people. He uses the language of first fruits, which would have been familiar to them. Everyone would have been familiar with first fruits terminology, okay? The first fruits were the, the first fruits, the first crops to be harvested in a given season. And what was the significance of the first fruits? The significance of the first fruits were the first fruits, in a sense, were the promise of what was to come later. Okay, if the first fruits come in, of what can you be guaranteed? Everything else is going to come in as well. An example in our context goes back to the deep freeze of February. Okay, when everyone's landscaping in this room was destroyed completely. Okay, and if you're like me, the temptation was to go into the backyard and get busy. Okay, start cutting, pulling, tearing out getting ready for the spring when we could plant new things, okay? But what did horticulturalist after horticulturalist after, can you say that quickly? Horticulturalist after horticulturalist, what did article after article have to say and commend? Don't cut it down, don't tear it up, don't pull it out, wait. What did they say to wait for? Wait for that first green leaf. Because of what could we be assured if there was that first green leaf? If that first green leaf came, it meant that it was alive. And if the first green leaf came, all the others would follow. That first green leaf was a first fruit. And to see that was to be assured that the plant was alive and well and recovered. It's the same thing, okay? The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first fruit 
of all that would follow. And as sure as that first fruit came in, the rest will come in as well. It's inconceivable that you would just get one. In the same way, it's inconceivable that Jesus would be raised and not his people. Such a curious thing to hold on to, isn't it? He anticipates another objection in verse 35. Go to panel 5 in the back of your bulletin. I'm not going to read it all. Go to verse 35 on panel 5. You know, Paul's anticipating another objection. Someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? In other words, some were likely mischaracterizing um, the, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead to imply that we walked around like zombies, like living corpses in some way. Paul says, it's not like that at all. Don't mischaracterize the Christian hope. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. I mean, Paul is genius here. Verse 37, and what you sow, it's not the body that is to be. It's just a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or some other kind of grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each uh, kind of seed its own body. In other words, in the same way, that when a seed dies, it produces something so much more fantastic, something so much more marvelous than the seed was, such is true with the glorification of our bodies. When our bodies die, what the power of God is going to do by His Spirit in raising us up and giving us new bodies is not even comparable to the bodies that we have now. We're not going to be walking around like zombies or, or, or something grotesque like that. It's going to be marvelous. He drives home this point in 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You know, our current bodies, they can die. Resurrected bodies can't die, won't die. Verse 43, it is, okay, our current bodies are sown in dishonor. They're tainted by sin. It, this glorified body, it's going to be raised in glory, not tainted by sin. It is sown in weakness, Paul writes, it is raised in power. Our current bodies are in many ways so weak and so limited, and the bodies that the Lord Jesus is going to give us are powerful. And they're going to be like beyond our wildest imagination in terms of their new capacities. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are, who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Verse 49, he kind of brings it together. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, okay? What happened to his body, Adam's body, is going to happen to our body. It's going to die. It's going to decompose. Just as we have been born 
the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay? In other words, what's true of your federal head? Okay? What's, what's true of the one who represents you will be true of you. Everyone in this room was born in Adam. He is our first father, father, and we inherited his original sin. We inherited his fallen nature. We bear his curse. We are all going to die. But that's not the end. God didn't just leave us with the first Adam. God sent a second Adam. He sent the Lord Jesus, the man of heaven. And what is true of him is also true of those who believe in him. We had no choice as it related to our first father, Adam. We were all going to suffer what he suffered. But only those who trust in Jesus will derive the benefits of the second Adam. Okay, so just before we continue here, so that, that really poses a question to all of us. Who represents you today? All of us are represented by the first Adam. Not everybody automatically gets rep represented by the second in order to enjoy the headship of the second Adam, we have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have faith in him. Trust in him for who he is and what he's done. Okay, so he's making this comparison. All died in Adam. All will be made alive for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so back, back to the beginning here. Why were they so fixated on denying the bodily resurrection? What was in it for them? Long story short, many scholars think that this was kind of a holdover from Greek culture. According to Greek philosophy, the body was bad, but the spirit was good. Okay, in death, your spirit, in a sense, would be liberated from your body. Okay, your body would be dead, gone, decomposed forever. And since your body wouldn't last, here's the link, since your body wouldn't last, what you did with it in this life was of no consequence. Okay, why aren't we especially careful with paper plates? Okay, why do we feel the freedom, you know, if we've got a knife, we will like carve in, you know, to the paper plate. We're not worried about damaging the paper plate. We threw out the paper plate. It was made to be discarded. We don't view it as valuable. So you can just chunk it, throw it away, do whatever with it. Okay, that's the Corinthian view of the body. Since the body was not eternal, since the body would not last, okay, sin against the body wasn't a big deal. You know, sin in general, sexual sin, they would justify because it's done in the body. The body's not going to last. It's not a big deal. It was a way of holding on to and justifying that belief. In their minds, they could have the benefits of Christ's bodily resurrection along with the benefits of not believing in a bodily resurrection for themselves. They, they would continue in some way. They would be forgiven of their sins, but they wouldn't have a body. In other words, it was a justification for sin. Paul's concern was if you deny the latter, like I said, if you deny the latter, bodily resurrection, in your case, one day you may very well deny the former, and that is the gospel. We're just like the Corinthians, beloved. And we need to be aware of the ways in which our hearts are more and more drawn and justify sins in a particular area. 
Okay, we need to be aware of sin's growing impact in our lives. Because something that may start as a little thing, it may not stay a little thing. And a lot of times we have sophisticated ways of justifying particular sins that we commit. I mean, I often use grace as, as a, in a sense, as a justification for sin. For treating it as a small thing, a light thing, a little thing. We're experts, experts at learning how to justify sin, protect certain sins, um, continue with certain besetting sins. Okay, this little thing, this little thing on the part of the Corinthians, they viewed it as a small thing. They affirmed the big thing, the big thing, the biggie, the Lord Jesus, okay, while also holding on to this thing that they perceived to be small, no threat to the gospel. Paul's saying, ultimately, it could be a threat to the gospel. A permissive attitude toward a particular sin that we think might be a little thing can lead down a very dangerous road. What is coming to your mind right now? There are things that are coming to my mind. Sin patterns, sin inclinations, things that I do on a regular basis that if left unchecked could lead down a very, very dark road. What is it for you? I deeply appreciate what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this, one of my favorite quotes from him that kind of puts it all together and we'll close. Here's my challenge to all of us, myself included. Beware of light thoughts of sin, because it is by degrees that men get familiar with sin. At first, a little sin startled us, but startles us, but soon we say, isn't it just a little one? And then there comes another, larger, and then another, until by degrees we begin to regard a particular sin as a small thing. I mean, I think this is Spurgeon at his best. The ear in which the cannon has been booming later will not notice even the slightest sounds. Take heed lest you fall little by little. Sin, a little thing, is it not a poison? Does not the tiny coral insect build a rock that one day wrecks a navy? Do not little strokes fell lofty oaks Sin, a little thing? It girded the Redeemer's head with thorns and pierced his heart. It made him suffer anguish, bitterness, and woe. And could you weigh the least sin in the scales of eternity, you would fly from it like you would fly from a serpent. Beloved, there are no little sins, small sins, or innocuous sins in God's kingdom. And this day, this day we should pray that the Lord by his Spirit would reveal the ways in which our attitude towards particular sins in our lives put us and our loved ones in danger. Because it's not if, it's what. What in your life you're allowing to be cultivated? What in your life you're feeding? We should pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us and give us the strength to repent. I'll end with this. Many, many years ago, in Psalm 139, David wrote this. It's my prayer for all of us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.
Amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for Paul, for his life and his ministry. We thank you, thank you for um, providentially preserving these letters for us. Father, we know that the issues um, that the Corinthians struggle with, that, that, that those root sins are the very same root sins that we struggle with. The window dressing is different, but the core and the heart and the struggle is the same. Father, um, forgive us for the ways that we, we justify um, a myriad of sins in our hearts and lives. Holy Spirit, convict us, um, reveal to us um, things that we are doing even now that could lead to a very dangerous result. Father, expose in our hearts threats to our marriage, uh, threats to our walk with you. Lord, um, convict us, help us to repent. Father, help us to see sin as a significant thing and not a little thing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.